2007, October 16th, Lecture 19, Orbits. So yesterday we learned about Newtonian gravitation. We talked about how the fall of an apple is the, uh, on the Earth is the same as the fall of the moon around the Earth. And we gave a fairly detailed and quantitative demonstration, same to the one that Newton used, which showed that if you assume that the, the acceleration causes a deflection, either the downward fall of an apple or the deflection of the moon, which is moving to one side, and showed you that the amount of that deflection relative to the apple is the same as the relative accelerations. The only real difference between them is the force of, gravi is the force of gravity is the distance from the Earth. Since the moon is 60 times further away from the Earth, the center of the Earth, than the apple is, it should feel 1 60th squared or 1 3600th the acceleration. And sure enough, the amount of predicted, de predicted deflection exactly matched what is needed to have the moon perpetually fall about the Earth. So what Newton was able to explain very well was that the gravity that works on the Earth, that pulls objects down to the ground, was the same gravity that holds the moon in orbit around the, uh, around the Earth. But we need to close the loop, if you will, on that discussion and ask, now how do we describe orbits in the context of Newton's law of gravity and Newton's laws of motion? Let's return to the problem of Johannes Kepler, who described his laws of planetary motion, and see if we can understand these laws in the context of Newtonian gravity. And that's what today's lecture is on Newtonian orbits. The first key idea today is we're going to introduce Newton's generalization of Kepler's laws. Kepler's laws only strictly refer to planets orbiting the sun. What Newton showed was that Kepler was only looking at a special case of much more general laws governing the shapes of orbits. Newton's generalization of these laws is as follows. Newton's first law of orbital motion, or generalization of Kepler's first law, is that orbits are now conic sections with the center of mass of the two bodies at one focus. The second law is a statement about something called the conservation of angular momentum. We'll demonstrate in this lecture what that is. Finally, the third law, which was period squared proportional to a cubed, Newton pointed out that it also depends upon the masses of the objects that you're talking about. Say, for example, an astronaut circling the Earth. I can write a version of Kepler's third law for an astronaut circling the Earth that includes the mass of the Earth and the mass of the astronaut. Similarly, for the solar system, I would include the mass of the sun and the mass of whatever planet I'm looking at. Because remember, gravity, that force, depends upon the masses of the objects. This will lead us to two special orbital speeds that are going to be of interest to us in determining which kind of orbit, which of these various conic sections you get on in Newton's laws. The circular speed, which not surprisingly is the speed you need to maintain a perfectly circular orbit, and the escape speed the speed you need to break free of the central object's gravity and enter onto an open or broken orbit. So we'll see how all of these work here. Today we're going to apply Newton's laws to Kepler's laws, not only explain Kepler's laws, but extend them and give them tremendous predictive power and also make them generally useful, not just for talking about planets orbiting the sun, but anywhere in the universe where one object orbits around another in response to their mutual gravity. So let's review for a second Kepler's three laws of planetary motion. The first law is that planets are ellipses with the sun located at one focus. A circle or circular orbit is simply a special case 
of an ellipse that has no squashedness to it. It's not eccentric at all. And then the foci join together at the very center of the circle. And so a circle is nothing more than a special case of an ellipse. The second law describes how the speed of an object changes as it moves along this ellipse. It says that a line drawn from the sun to the planet sweeps out equal areas in equal times. So that as the planet is fat closer to the sun, it moves faster on its orbit. When the planet is furthest from the sun, it moves at its slowest speed. This is a geometric description of the changing speed as you move around from one side of the ellipse to the other. And finally, the most important of these laws, the third or so-called harmonic law, states that the square of the period of an object is proportional to the size of the semi-major axis cubed. And I can write this equality if I express period in years and A, the semi-major axis, in astronomical units. But this law, as formulated by Kepler, only applies to planets or asteroids or comets orbiting the sun. I cannot, for example, apply this formula exactly here to the moon and the Earth. I can't say, well, the moon is 300,000 kilometers, 350,000 kilometers away, and its period of orbit is 20-odd days. I square one and cube the other, they're not going to be inequality. It's going to be something different. If I try to apply them to Jupiter's moons, Io, Europa, Ganymede, and Callisto, the four moons discovered by Galileo, they will obey something that looks like the harmonic law, but it won't be period squared exactly equal to a cubed. It's something different. So it's pretty clear that Kepler's laws are very specific. They specifically involve planets and things orbiting around the sun. But Newton showed that the, the force of gravity, the force that, that governs the fall of an apple upon the Earth, is the same that governs the fall of the Earth around the sun, that governs the fall of the moon around the Earth, and so forth. So therefore, one should understand Kepler's specific laws in a much more general way. And he set about doing that in his Principia. Newton's generalization can be sh was to show that Kepler's laws are not just empirical laws, but they follow exactly from first principles. Those first principles are his three laws of motion, the law of inertia, forces or masses times accelerations, and the equal and opposite forces rule, and his law of gravitation that properly describes the falls of apples and falls of the moon. The generalization means that they will now be able to come up with versions of Kepler's laws that apply to any two massive objects that are moving under the influence of their mutual gravitational attraction the moon orbiting the Earth, two stars orbiting around each other, stars orbiting around the center of a galaxy, and so on and so forth. They are universally generalizable rules. So what are those rules? What are Newton's generalizations of Kepler's three laws? Let's go through them one by one. Newton, the first law of orbital motion, generalized by Newton, states that the shape of an orbit is a conic section with the center of mass at one of the two bodies at one focus. Kepler said orbits are ellipses with the sun exactly on the focus. So we've got two changes here. The shape is now a conic section, a particular family of geometric curves. And what's located at the focus of that curve is not the central object, not the sun, but the center of mass of whatever two objects I'm dealing with. Well, let's see what this means. What is a conic section? A conic section is one of a family of curves that are formed by taking a cone and cutting it with various planes. So I very conveniently have a cut cone here made of wood. If I cut it directly along one direction, 
I get a circular cross-section. If I make a slant cut, where the angle's bigger than the sides of the cone, I get an elliptical shape. So I get a nice elliptical cross-section, and notice where the hole is, that turns out to be at one focus. Gee, it's almost miraculous here. If I cut the cone in a plane that goes directly parallel to the pointy axis, the apex axis, I get an open curve called a parabola. And finally, if I cut it at an oblique angle, which never closes upon itself, the angle is bigger than the angles of the cones here, I get an open curve called a hyperbola. So it's a family of four curves, two closed and two open. Circles, ellipses, parabolas, and hyperbolas. This is a well-known piece of geometry. It goes all the way back to Apollonius of Perga back in the 3rd, 4th century BC. Well-known set of geometry. The other piece that's different is that instead of having one of the objects on the focus, we put the center of mass of the two, object, of the, of the two bodies at that focus point, whether it's an ellipse, a circle, a parabola, or hyperbola. For example, the Earth does not orbit around the exact center of the Sun. The two bodies, the Earth and the Sun, orbit around a common center of mass point that's located between them, their mutual center of mass. So if the Earth, because of the Sun's gravity, makes a big ellipse with the, sun, with the center of mass located at one focus of that ellipse, at that same focus of that ellipse is a smaller, slightly reversed ellipse with the Sun making a little orbit, a little tiny orbit, around that, that, that center of mass. We'll see a couple pictures of this here in just a second. So the two big changes are, instead of just being ellipses and circles, we now can have ellipses, circles, hyperbolas, and parabolas. And that what's located at the action center, at the focus of the ellipse, or the focus of the circle, or parabola or hyperbola, is the center of mass of the two bodies. So here is just that little model taken apart, I can get two families of closed curves, circles and ellipses, by how I cut planes through the cone. If I cut the parabola exactly along one face of the cone, I get a parabola. If I cut it at right angles or at various intermediate angles, I get a family of different kinds of hyperbole. These give me two different families of orbits. So before, Kepler only knew about orbits that seemed to close upon themselves. So the first set of families are familiar. These closed, or now Newton would say, they are gravitationally bound orbits. These are going to be ellipses, or a special case is a circle. A circle is the special case of an ellipse with no eccentricity. It's that slice straight through the cone at right angles to its apex axis. It's only one and only one circle that goes through that point on the cone. Every other angle that slice through will be increasingly elongated ellipses. The orbits are said to be bound gravitationally because the Earth, for example, is gravitationally bound to the Sun. It will simply perpetually go round and around and around on its path about the Sun. It won't just suddenly break free and head off into intergalactic space. But the second group of orbits are much more unusual. These are open or unbounded orbits. These are going to be the hyperbolas, or the more general case, just like, so ellipses are to hyperbolas what circles are, sorry. Hyperbolas are to ellipses what parabolas are to circles. Hyperbolas are the general case of an open, cur open orbit, and the special case is a parabola. It's the one and only one curve that's exactly lined up with the, 
cutting the axis exactly straight on at the plane. These orbits are unbound in the sense that they do not cycle. They do not close back and repeat upon themselves. The object simply passes by the object once and then heads off into infinite space. So we say that these objects are for, ob for orbits are for objects that are unbound and therefore in the process of escaping from the gravity of the object. Now they never truly break free from the gravity of the object in the sense that the gravitational force goes to zero. What actually happens is they just feel less and less of the force, but the gravity is never sufficient to make them stop and fall back down towards the sun. So a way of thinking about it is if I take a spacecraft and sling it out towards Mars, I've tried to throw it away from the sun, but if it's moving so slow, eventually that spacecraft will stop, turn around and fall back towards around the sun, and it will be on a long elliptical orbit. But if I can somehow sling it with enough speed that it gets onto a parabolic or hyperbolic orbit, then it will travel away from the sun, getting slower and slower. It's decelerating in response to the force of the sun, but the further it gets, the gravity force of the sun gets weaker and weaker, and it's never enough to make it stop. And so it breaks through, free from the gravitational influence of the sun over time and heads off into interstellar space. So we get two families of orbits, closed, bound orbits, and open, unbound orbits. Now, which of these, now how do you tell what is it that makes the difference between a circular orbit and an elliptical? Well, it turns out that a circular orbit is a special case of an orbit which has a very specific speed called the circular speed. The circular speed is the speed that an object has to have to sustain a circular orbit at a given distance r away from a massive body m. I won't go into the derivation of this, but it's very simply stated. The circular speed, which for convention is always called v instead of s. Remember, speed is how fast you're moving. Velocity, v, is how fast and in what direction. But for convenience, we always call a speed v. v sub c for v circular is the square root of g times the mass of the central object divided by the distance you are from that object's center. It is, if you will, the radius of the circular orbit. If the speed at a given location, if I'm on a circular orbit and I'm moving slower, I somehow make myself move slower than the circular speed, then my orbit about that central massive body is going to become an ellipse. But because I'm now not, remember, the way the moon worked is the moon's trying to move off to one side, but gravity makes it deflect downward. If the moon was moving at exactly the circular speed for its distance from the Earth, it would fall just enough so it always stayed the same distance from the Earth, and it would be on a circle. What if at that position it's moving a little bit slower? Then it moves a little less to one side in one second and falls that same amount. So now the fall of the curve is not enough to stay on the circular track, and it falls inside the circle onto a shorter ellipse. So if I have v less than v circular at a given location, a given distance from the center of the Earth, the orbit will be an ellipse that is smaller than the circular orbit at that same location. Similarly, if the speed at that position is bigger than the circular speed, I will get an ellipse again. This case, however, I'm moving faster to one side in the time that I fall, so I have a flatter trajectory. The flatter trajectory is bigger than the circle, and so I'll, I will end up on an ellipse that is larger than the circular orbit through that point at that location. So you can see where the circular orbit is now a special case of an ellipse. It's also a special case of elliptical orbits. 
It's not moving too slow or too fast. It's the Goldilocks orbit. It's moving just right speed to maintain its circular position as it falls around the Earth or falls around the Sun. And so we call that exact just right speed the circular speed. Okay, going slower than the circular speed means slower all the way down to zero. If I brought my speed exactly to zero, what do you think would happen to the object hanging above the Earth at some distance r away from its center? What would happen to an object if I simply took all of its velocity away from it? It would fall. What would be the orbit? The orbit would be straight towards the center of the Earth, a one-way trip into the surface of the Earth. But if I throw it to one side with a certain speed, it'll follow a flat trajectory. You can imagine here on the Earth, I could throw it fast enough to actually curl around and come back around and hit me in the back of the head, sort of cartoon style. Well, almost Marvin cartoon style. As I throw it faster and faster, it gets further and further. So as I go V greater than VC, eventually my speed will get so fast that I will break out of the biggest ellipse I can make and break into a parabolic orbit, a parabola. At that speed, what is that speed where I break out from an ellipse to a parabola? It has a special name. It's called the escape speed. So the circular speed is how I distinguish between ellipses and circles in, in closed orbits. I can only be in a circular orbit if I have exactly the circular speed. Any slower or faster at that location, I must be on an ellipse. If I go fast enough, if I break through a certain minimum speed, such that I can break free of the gravity of a massive body from a given location, I call that the escape speed, which is now the square root of 2 gm over r, where r is my distance from the center of that massive body with mass m. Notice this is really close. It's a square root of 2 bigger than the circular speed. So I only have to get about 40% faster than the circular speed to bust onto a parabolic orbit. Now from the Earth's surface to give you an idea of the scale. So Earth's surface means 6,370 kilometers from the center of 10 to the 26 times 10 to the 27 kilos worth of stuff. If I wanted to launch Marvin onto a circular orbit, and we'll ignore the mountains and the buildings and everything, this will be sort of a Warner Brothers kind of physics, where the coyote throws something really fast, it goes all the way around the Earth and smacks him in the back of the head. To do that, I would have to wind up and pitch Marvin at 7.9 kilometers per second, or that's about a 28,400 kilometer per hour fastball, uh, which isn't going to happen. It's really fast. If I wanted to instead throw Marvin so fast that it is, Marvin escapes from the Earth and actually breaks free of the Earth's gravity and goes into orbit around the Sun, I only have to throw it a little teeny bit faster, 11.2 kilometers a second, or about 40,300 kilometers per hour. That's an awful lot of speed. But what if I wanted to send Marvin to the moon? You know, bam, zoom, sway to the moon. Well, I'd have to throw him at about 40,300 kilometers per hour towards the moon. So he breaks free of the Earth's gravity and then can come into the influence of the moon's gravity. That's an awful fast speed even for a rocket. So how do we do it? We first boost the spacecraft into orbit, getting it far enough from the Earth that the gravity is smaller, and then we fire it off into the transfer orbit and try to get it up there to the Earth-Moon system, up to the moon. So we often play some tricks. Remember, the escape velocity depends upon one over the square root of how far away you are. So the further you get something from the Earth, the less speed you have to have to break into a parabolic orbit from that location. So escape speed and circular speed are 
from the influence of a given mass, from a given location, from the center of that mass. So the escape speed, for example, on top of Mount Everest is a little bit less than the escape speed down here at sea level and so forth. So circular speed and escape speed are the two important speeds. Now, how do those determine what orbits I'm going to be on? Well, let's start out with an object, an orbit around a central body, a central mass m. If I want it to be on a circular orbit, I've got to give it exactly the circular speed for that radius. If I made the radius four times larger, the circular speed would be the square root of four or two times smaller because it goes like one over the square root. Now, what if from this location, I made the at little satellite I've got rolling around the Earth here go slower than the speed of a circular speed? Well, it won't be able to go as far to the right as it falls, and so it will fall down towards the Earth, and so I will get an ellipse passing through my starting location. My speed is less than the circular speed at that location where my laser pointer is, and now the orbit is an ellipse with the Earth at the far focus from my starting point. What if I go a little faster than the escape, than the circular speed? Now I can go further to the left in the same time I fall forward. I'm faster than the circular speed, but I'm less than the escape speed. So now I can fall further out around the Earth, and now I will be on an ellipse with the Earth at the near focus from my starting point. If I give it exactly the escape speed, then the, the object will actually zip by the, through that point at exactly the escape speed, but it's broken free and it will just continue on forever. It will make one pass by the Earth, but never come back again. So it's an open, unbound orbit. And because the speed is exactly the escape speed for that point, we call that a parabolic orbit through that point. If I go faster than the escape speed, my trajectory should be flatter. As I throw Marvin from soft to hard to harder still, I get a steep, shallower and shallower still trajectory as I increase the speed. So not surprisingly, if I throw the asteroid even faster, it will go on an open hyperbolic trajectory. As I get faster and faster, that trajectory will get flatter and flatter. Eventually, I get to effectively infinite speed. I will have a perfectly flat trajectory. But that's a different story for infinite speeds. So again, sort of fix this picture kind of in your mind about how these orbits work with respect to the circular speed and the escape speed, all of them starting from this same common location where all these curves intersect. That's the key insight into Keplerian, into Keplerian orbits as described now by Newton. And I can do this for any two bodies. That's the beauty of it. I don't just have to do this for the Earth. So that's one part of it. The curves are conic sections the second part is with the mass of center of mass at one focus. So what do I mean by center of mass? Well, this should be a familiar concept to you. I've got a big mass and a little mass, and there's some distance A away. What I want to find is the balance point. The center of mass is the balance point between these. So imagine I had a barbell with some masses on a stick. Then I could find a balance point where these would come into balance. I can define the distance from the balance point to the most massive object as A1, and the distance from the balance point to the least massive object, A2. The convention here is always that mass 1 is the big one, the primary, mass 2 is the secondary or smaller. Well, obviously, the semi-major axis here is my mean distance. Imagine I'm doing a circular orbit here. That should be A, and that will simply be the sum of the distance from the center of mass to the big object plus the center of mass 
distance to the little object. The ratio of these positions, A2 to A1, is just the inverse of the mass ratio. Not surprisingly, I expect the balance point to be closer to the big mass than the small mass. Let me demonstrate that principle here. Let's use a balance beam. This is the same principle as a balance beam for gravity. I need to have a small mass, so I have a small mass here, a warthog. And I'll clamp the warthog by the tail here to the balance beam. Okay, so I got a little Pumbaa there. And then I need a somewhat bigger mass, so I have a bigger warthog. You may wonder, where do I get these warthogs? My wife is also an astronomy professor, and she has the most amazing collection of stuffed warthogs you've ever seen in your life. All right. So here they are, the warthogs on a balance beam. The geometric center is here. Will these things be in balance? Well, of course not. Where should the center of balance be? Well, the center of balance should be in proportion to the ratio of the masses. It should be closer to the bigger guy here. So we'll simply slide this towards the big one. I'll just guess. Ah, oh, now I'm too close. Swing it along. I did not. Pretty close. There. Now we're in balance. The balance point is always closer to the bigger object, further from the smaller object. As I make the bigger object bigger, of course, I expect the balance point to move between. Now, let's say instead of having between these a balance beam, I have these two out in intergalactic space, so no Earth gravity, no sun gravity to get in your face, and I set them in orbit around each other. What is the most logical way for them to orbit each other? Like this, around the center of mass. So little Pumbaa's on a big orbit around the center of mass. It's a circular orbit. And big Pumbaa is on a smaller orbit, but also a circular orbit. And notice how they always stay on opposite sides of the center of mass. If I were in intergalactic space, I would look a lot less ridiculous here because I could get rid of the balance bar, but I would still have these two objects sitting there orbiting around each other in intergalactic space. So that's how center of mass works. It works for warthogs. It works for stuffed warthogs. And of course, it works for real physical objects. Here's an example. Let's do the Earth-Sun system. Here's an example. Let's work it out numerically. The Sun is about 2 times 10 to the 30 kilos in mass. The Earth is about 6 times 10 to the 24. The distance of the Sun to the center of mass plus the distance of the Earth to the center of mass is 1 AU. That's about 150 million kilometers. The ratio of the distance of the Sun to center of mass to Earth to center of mass is the ratio of the Earth to Sun mass, which is 3 times 10 to the minus 6. So I expect the Sun to be 3 million, one, three times, one over 3 times 10 to the 6, 300,000 times closer to the center of mass than the Earth is. That tells me that the Sun is actually not at the center of mass of the Earth-Sun system. It's actually 450 kilometers from the center of mass. That's not very far. That's barely across the state of Ohio. The sun is, in fact, 700,000 kilometers in radius. So the center of mass of the Earth-Sun system is actually inside the sun, but not at the exact center. It's just a little outside the center of the core. So the sun is actually moving a little bit around its center because of the gravity of the Earth upon the sun. And again, it's kind of what you expect, right? 
Because the force of the gravity of the sun upon the earth is exactly the same as the force of the gravity of the earth upon the sun. But the sun is a much bigger mass. It's about 300,000 times more massive. Therefore, it feels one three hundred thousandth of the acceleration. So it has a little teeny tiny acceleration where the Earth has a gigantic acceleration by comparison, 300,000 times bigger. In fact, the orbit of Jupiter and the Sun is such that the Sun, actually the center of mass, is outside the Sun for the Jupiter-Sun system or just outside the inner portion of it. Actually, no, it is substantially outside the center of the Sun. And if I add up the masses of all the planets, I would expect, if I looked at the solar system from the outside, I would see the Sun doing a kind of a fancy jigger dance as it tries to keep on its side the center of mass of all the planet system. And in fact, I can use that effect, as we'll see in later lectures in this course, to find unseen planets around other stars by watching the reflex motion of the stars around their common center of mass. They're not at the focus. They're sitting off to one side of the focus. The focus is occupied by the center of mass. Oops, actually that wasn't supposed to be there. The second law. Okay, so that gives you the, the first law, what the orbit shapes are and where the two players are. Now the Earth does not orbit the Sun. The Sun and Earth orbit about a common center of mass. And they orbit on paths which are described by conic sections. So that, is, that describes the shape of the orbit. What now sets the speed of the orbit? What sets the fact that planets with a line drawn from the focus to one planet sweep out equal areas in equal times? Well, that turns out to be Newton's statement of the second law of orbital motion is that orbital motions conserve angular momentum. Angular momentum is a quantity called L. It's equal to the product of the mass of the object times its speed times the distance it is from the center of mass. And I say that this product, m times v times r, is a constant. What this means is that if I take something like the Earth or a planet like Mars, first of all, its mass isn't going to change substantially. So what's going to happen is as I change the distance, the velocity, the speed, has got to change in proportion so as to keep this product constant. Okay, so at constant mass, if I increase the size of the planet's orbit, the speed has got to decrease proportionally. Similarly, if I decrease the size of the orbit, the speed has got to increase proportionally so the product V times R is a constant. Now, you've all seen conservation of angular momentum. It's actually a very common phenomenon, more common in figure skaters or crazy professors sitting in rolly chairs carrying masses. So I need a little assist here from my uh, TA, or IA. Give me just a, a little spin, not too fast. Thank you. So I've got two masses out the end of my arms. As I draw them towards me, I move a little bit faster. Actually, I can do this myself. Moving around here like this. As I draw them towards me, I move a little faster. As I let them out, I move a little more slowly. So now if I set myself in motion and make the motion, the planet, be the one barbell, as it goes close, it goes faster. As it goes out, it goes slower. Closer, faster, slower outwards. The change in speed is directly proportional to the change in distance of the masses. Now, it's not a perfect demo here for proportion because, quite frankly, I weigh a whole lot more than two two-kilo barbells. But even so, when I draw the masses towards the middle, I move a lot faster, I move a lot slower out at the outskirts. And planets obey the same rule. 
I'm not going to stand up real fast. I'm not going to be that much entertainment value today. So let's apply this now to planets. The law of angular momentum and equal areas are just different statements of each other. Equal areas and equal times, well, you're drawing out a triangle. The distance from the sun to the planet is the radius. The base of the triangle is how far it moves in a given time. How far does it move in a given time? V times the time. V times T. So the product of the, so the area of that triangle is base half base times height. Height is R, base is V times T. Therefore, the area is VR times T. Well, if I have equal times, then if I made R smaller, the height of the triangle smaller, I have to make the base larger to keep the same area. So saying equal areas swept out in equal times is saying keep the, rate, the product of the distance from the sun and the orbital speed the same, i.e., conserve angular momentum. So near perihelion, closest to the sun, the planet is at smaller radius, so the speed v increases to compensate. It sweeps out equal areas in equal times. When I'm at aphelion, furthest from the sun, I have to decrease my speed proportionally to sweep out the same area. So the second law was a geometric rule, and what Newton recognized was this conservation of angular momentum was embodied in the second law. The second law was a geometric description of the motion, but what Kepler was glimpsing was a deeper truth, that orbital motion conserves angular momentum. Okay. And it was Newton who was able to formulate angular momentum and show that Kepler's second law was general for any two objects orbiting the sun. It wasn't just made up wheels within wheels anymore. It was behaving a first principle of physics. Oops. Those movies, by the way, are broken. That's why I'm slipping through them. The third law of motion. The third law of orbital motion is the most powerful of the three. Newton's generalization is the nastiest looking equation you're going to see in this class. We used to say p squared is equal to a cubed, but now Newton said for any two masses, m1 and m2, on an orbit, a closed orbit, described by semi-major axis a, the period of that orbit squared is equal to 4 pi squared times a cubed divided by g times the sum of the masses. <sighs> Whoa, that's scary. All right. Really what happens is p squared is proportional to a cubed was Kepler's version for the solar system. What Newton comes in is says that constant of proportionality between the square of the period and the cube of the orbit actually depends upon the sum of the masses of the two bodies. Now, for the planets orbiting the sun, the mass of the sun is a thousand times bigger than all the planets summed together in round numbers. That means that a thousand plus a little bit might as well be a thousand. So this constant of proportionality here is the same to first approximation for all planets. Pi is a constant, 4 is a constant, g is a constant, and the mass of the sun's not changing appreciably. So p squared is equal to a messy constant times a cubed. I change the units from seconds and kilometers to years and astronomical units, and I get p squared is equal to a cubed. Cool. So I can approximate p squared is actually equal to 4 pi squared divided by g times the mass of the sun times a cubed. So only, only, only in the case that you are talking about orbits around the sun and the object is much smaller in mass than the mass of the sun, I can approximate the third law of Newton, third, Newton's version of Kepler's third law, 
as p squared is proportional to 1 over the mass times the semi-major axis cubed. And if I pick units of AUs and years, then I can get rid of the 4 pi squared and GM sun altogether. So this is an approximation as a special case. You would never use this formula in a homework, say, because it's only a special case. Now, Newton's form of Kepler's third law is, is very powerful because it's the only way we have in astronomy to measure masses. Okay? The mass of the Earth, mass of the Sun, can be measured from the Earth's mass now. The period of the Earth is one year, or 3.156 times 10 to the 7 seconds. The semi-major axis of the Earth's orbit is an AU, or 1.496 times 10 to the 11 meters. I plug it into this formula, and I solve for the mass of the Sun. It's 1.99 times 10 to the 30 kilograms. So I do 4 pi squared times 1 AU in meters cubed, and G times the period of the Earth squared in seconds, and I get about 2 times 10 to the 30 kilograms. Now, it should be 198, but, you know, it's not an exact formula. You have to do a bit more work. I've measured the mass of the sun. The sun is 150 million kilometers away. I can't possibly weigh it with a balance beam, but I do have a balance beam. An orbit between two massive bodies is a balance beam by the second law, and therefore, if I can figure out what governs the speed of motion, which is related to the law of gravity and the third law of Kepler, I have a way to measure masses. Anywhere in the universe that I see two objects orbiting each other, I can measure the sum of their masses. Anywhere, if I can orbit, measure the period of their orbit and the size of their orbit. Or, conversely, you can do it with speeds and orbit size. It's a universal method. Using the moons of Jupiter, I can find that the mass of the Jupiter is 300 times the mass of the Earth in round numbers. I can measure that the Earth is 81 times more massive than the moon by applying Newton's version of Kepler's third law to the Earth-Moon system. I can do it for the masses of binary stars halfway across the universe. What Kepler's laws are describing are purely describing descriptions of the motion. They're empirical. They were arrived at by trial and error and some vague ideas about celestial harmonies. But he didn't know why the motions had to be that way. Newton provided the explanation, his three laws of motion and his law of gravity, through the means of the calculus to make the calculation, showed that Kepler's laws are just a natural consequence of the laws of motion and gravitation and could be generalized as a tool anywhere in the universe for measuring masses. It gives the laws especially predictive power. They're not an end point. Newton didn't solve the problem and then stop. Newton's laws are a beginning. They're a tool for exploring the universe. And that's what we're going to now look at over the next couple of days are some other implications of gravity that will be useful to us later.